Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Welcome to episode 83 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been a bumper week for financial crime news again this week, with fraud and bribery and anti-corruption leading the way. But there are also stories concerning market abuse, sanctions as well as the usual roundup of cyber attack news. So let's get on with it. As usual, I've linked the main stories flagged in the podcast right there in the podcast description. And there's an awful lot of them. We'll start the financial crime news this week with sanctions and to the United States, where the U.S. Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has designated Ekaterina Zdanova, who is a Russian national and has been acting on behalf of sanctioned Russian elites in helping them launder funds using virtual currency. As the OFAC press release provides, Zdanova has also provided a range of virtual cash-based tax residency and other services to Russian clients seeking to launder funds or obscure the sources of their wealth. Among others, she has provided such services to individuals connected with a ransomware group that US law enforcement identified as a cybercrime threat to healthcare providers in the United States. Link to the OFAC and the Department of State press releases can be found in the podcast description. The United States Department of State has also designated Nexat Krasniki, the former director of the Department of Procurement at the Kosovo Ministry of Trade and Industry, due to his involvement in significant corruption. He's regarded as generally ineligible for entry into the United States because, quotes, he abused his public position by accepting bribes in exchange for awarding a contract permitting the construction of an industrial park in the Dresnus municipality by the operating company Eltoni. The link is in the podcast description. Now to the European Union, where the President of the Commission has announced the 12th package of sanctions uh, that it's been agreed and it will be debated by individual member states of the bloc next week. The focus of the sanctions, as we trailed in previous weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, is Russian diamonds. Staying with the EU and one of its member countries, namely Lithuania, which is reportedly asking its law enforcement agencies to investigate whether luxury vehicles exported from the country to third countries are ending up in Russia. If that were the case then it will be a clear case of sanctions evasion, which is why, I suppose, the investigation is being launched. And the final sanctions story from the EU this week is that the General Court of the European Union has upheld sanctions against Dmitry Mazepan. In the UK, a freedom of information request by Pinsent Matons, the international law firm, has revealed that 127 companies voluntarily disclosed they had breached Russia-related sanctions. Such disclosure can be beneficial to firms in that OFSI 
can take cooperation into account in determining the sanction. In terms of actions taken in the UK by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, 29 entries have been added to the Russian sanctions regime and one removed. The designated person removed is Sergei Stonyenko. Links to the notices from OFSI and the updated consolidated list are in the podcast description. Now, that range of designations, the 29 new entries have been added, is linked to a red alert published this week by the National Crime Agency, the NCA, in the UK. The NCA has sought, by issuing the alert, to bring attention to the regulated sector that Russia is using gold as a means to undermine the impact of the United Kingdom's sanctions regime. As the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office press release provided, 29 individuals and entities operating in and supporting Russia's gold and oil sectors have been sanctioned by the UK. New listings include both Russian oligarchs and businesses and third-country enablers fueling Russia's war revenues. Russia's gold and oil markets have close ties to the Kremlin and serve as critical revenue streams for its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Gold is a significant income stream for Russia's war effort, one of the highest by value after oil and gas, worth £12.6 billion to the Russian economy in 2021. Link to the press release and the notice from the National Crime Agency are in the podcast description. Now the final piece of sanctions news uh, is an offsy amendment to a general license. Now that general license was issued in 2022. It's general license 1839676 and it relates to Russian travel for UK nationals. The amendment makes clear that paragraph 4.1 of the license only permits the purchase of tickets from a designated person or a subsidiary for passenger rail or passenger air journeys originating in or within Russia. The link to the updated license and the full list of licenses issued by OFSI is in the podcast description. Now that is it for sanctions. Now we move to fraud. This week's fraud news starts in the United Kingdom where there's been an update on the fraud trial which has arisen from the collapse of Patisserie Valerie the cake shop that used to be on the high street in the United Kingdom. I think the brand was bought by another party, may have been Sainsbury's actually, because they seem to be in Sainsbury's now. Anyway, you'll recall from previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast that Christopher Marsh, who was the chief financial officer of Patisserie Holdings, his wife Louise Marsh, an accountant Pritesh Mystery, and financial consultant Nilesh Kumar Ladd, have been charged with a range of offences arising from the company's collapse. Christopher Marsh, Mystery and Ladd face charges of fraud by false representation, one count of conspiracy to defraud, and one count of making or supplying documents used for fraud. Louise Marsh faces one count of conspiracy to defraud. Now, I mean, I suppose this news isn't welcome in that the accused will now have to wait over two years since the trial is now scheduled to be- to begin on the 2nd of March 2026 and it's listed for 13 weeks. The lengthy delay may relate not only to the delays in the criminal court system which have been well documented during and since the pandemic, in fact also before the pandemic there were delays, 
but it's also from an understanding that the Serious Fraud Office will need to wade through approximately 3 million documents in advance of the trial. Now, to the subject of fraud trials which have been completed. UK Finance has report, no, reported, now UK Finance is the trade body, first that a, con a former contractor working for a bank as a senior market data administrator and financial analyst has pleaded guilty to fraud by abuse of position under the Fraud Act 2006. The total value of the fraud was just over £2.2 million and the perpetrator, Michael Grant, has been sentenced to four years imprisonment. Second story from UK Finance is that the criminal network which gained unlawful access to customer accounts, stealing £1 million in total, has been identified. The gang, which includes insiders from the bank, has received a range of terms of imprisonment. Links to both press releases can be found in the podcast description. Staying in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority has published the outcomes from its anti-fraud controls and complaint handling in firms targeted specifically at authorised push payment fraud. The Financial Conduct Authority undertook a high-level evaluation of firms' approach to fraud risk management, which, first, reviewed firms' fraud strategies and the critical elements of operational processes, secondly, considered how fraud detection and prevention systems and controls operate in practice in the face of evolving fraud attacks, thirdly, examined how firms ensure appropriate oversight of the risk framework for all types of fraud, including how management information is reported and acted upon, and fourthly, assessed the customer experience and fairness of customer outcomes by looking at how firms manage and respond to fraud complaints. In terms of outcomes, the Financial Conduct Authority has noted that an insufficient focus on delivering good consumer outcomes in many of the firms we reviewed that were that were that were reviewed management information and actions often focused on commercial risk appetite rather than custom impact and treatment which frankly is an unsurprising element of the findings as far as i'm concerned significant scope in many firms is needed to improve the support provided to victims of fraud including from the first point of contact in many cases firms need to do more to enable customers to report fraud easily and promptly. Poor complaint handling, including firms often taking too long to respond to customer complaints, was also a key finding of the report. Customers provided with decision letters that were sometimes unclear, confusing, or included unhelpful and, on occasion, accusatory language. Yeah, again, an element which does not surprise me from these findings. Limited evidence that firms are appropriately taking account of characteristics of customer vulnerability when making decisions about fraud claims and complaints, which is something they need to be careful of. There are regulatory and other obligations from the wider law which are imposed upon the actions which they take. They need to take care. Anyway, the link to the updated website published by the Financial Conduct Authority on this very matter this week is in the podcast description. In the US, two cases announced by the Department of Justice. First, charges against an international fraudulent scheme which is understood to have billed, fraudulently of course, half a billion dollars of prescriptions to a range of pharmacies across Brooklyn, Staten Island, 
Long Island and elsewhere. Secondly, charges have also been brought against five individuals who sought fraudulently to obtain bank and small business administration loans valued at $35 million. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. In the European Union, the European Anti-Fraud Office, OLAF, and the European Public Prosecutor's Office, the EPPO, have announced an investigation into fraud and money laundering with an estimated value of 15 million euros. It's alleged that the fraud was committed by the issuance of fake or incorrect invoices for EU funding designed to support innovation and productivity through IT projects in the bloc. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. And finally, on fraud this week, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, has published a report on illicit financial flows from cyber-enabled fraud. The link to the report is in the podcast description, but the press release does provide the FATF, in partnership with the Egmont Group and Interpol, analysed how the cyber-enabled fraud landscape has evolved, its links to other crimes and how criminals may exploit vulnerabilities in new technologies. The report highlights examples of national operational responses and strategies that have proven successful in tackling cyber-enabled fraud. This includes the need to break down silos and accelerate and, and enhance collaboration across various sectors and on both the domestic and international levels. Like I said, the link to the report is in the podcast description. Have a read of that if you're at a loose end this weekend. Now, that's it for fraud to bribery and corruption news this week, and there's been a decent wedge of it. We'll start in France, where the Justice Minister, Eric Dupont Moretti, has gone on trial charged with abuse of office. The allegation is that Dupont Moretti attempted to secure disciplinary sanctions against four magistrates who investigated him, his clients, and his friends. The trial continues. In the United States, a former government employee has been sentenced for her role in a bribery scheme. Dawn Dorsey, a former employee of the District of Columbia Department of Housing and Community Development, was sentenced for, quotes, accepting bribes in return for giving out confidential information held by the D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development to real estate developers Frederick Silvers and Brian Bailey. The information was confidential. Unredacted Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act offer of sale notices, which included the names of tenants holding topper rights. Topper provides tenants living in the District of Columbia with the right to purchase their residence should the owner decide to sell the property. Under Topper, tenants can reassign their right to purchase to a third party. And it seems that that information became rather too valuable and therefore was certainly worth obtaining in this court, uh, in this case. Dorsey was sentenced to 36 months probation. The link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. In another story of bribery and corruption by public officials in the U.S., a Manhattan jury has found two former U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agents guilty of disclosing confidential information to defence lawyers as part of a bribery scheme. In the UK, five men have been sentenced to between 28 and nine months imprisonment for their part in a corrupt waste management scheme. Yep, you heard me right there. The 
quotes controller of a sole trading waste disposal company was paying bribes to Cardiff council staff operating the Weybridge to give favourable false readings. Link is in the podcast description to the Crown Prosecution Service website. News alert to that story. And the final bit of bribery and corruption news this week takes us to the European Union and two, I suppose, allied stories. First, Transparency International has published a report urging the European Union to enhance its whistleblower protection laws. Quotes, There's a lack of general protection for whistleblowers who report corruption and no obligation to examine their reports in several EU countries. This is a reminder that a robust legal framework is crucial to protect whistleblowers from retaliation. Link to the press release, which contains a link to the report, is in the podcast description. Now, in what might only be described as a remarkable coincidence given that announcement by Transparency International, Laura Cavesi, who is the European Chief Prosecutor, gave a short speech, I think she gave the keynote in fact, at the Policy Forum, Anti-Corruption, Democratic Resilience and Economic Security, and that was given in Sofia in Bulgaria. It is a speech which makes comments on, of course, broader aspects of financial crime. In fact, she trawls through a number of different things. But Kavesi shares a relatable story from her time as chief of the Romanian anti-corruption office. And the story concerns and is a good reminder of how corruption affects the lives of individuals in ways that aren't always immediately appreciated. It can be fairly obvious with crimes such as fraud and other kinds of crime, other crimes of crime, that there is almost an immediate and tangible impact on the lives of individuals. But this speech that she gives is a reminder of the tangible impact which corruption can have on the lives of individuals, which is often not always appreciated. It's an interesting one, and frankly, it's worth a read. And because of that, I wouldn't normally mention keynotes, because keynote speeches tend to be a bit bland. But this one, it's worth a read. So I've linked it in the podcast description. Now, that's it for bribery and and anti-corruption news. Now we move to consider a bit of market abuse news, and it is from the United Kingdom, where the Financial Conduct Authority has issued one of its much-loved Dear CEO letters aimed at wealth management and stockbroking firms. Now, in terms of the financial crime observations which such firms need to make, the document is fairly unforgiving, given that this part of the financial services sector is regarded as high risk, certainly relative to some of the others. Therefore, the Financial Conduct Authority expects firms, not knowingly or otherwise, to engage or facilitate fraud, scams or money laundering, to understand their financial crime risks by identifying their clients, including their expected transaction patterns and corporate structure, not to carry out tick-box compliance exercises or outside respons- outsource responsibility to third parties, ensure that they have robust and effective systems and controls to counter financial crime and money laundering in an appropriate and risk-based way, to ensure that SMF 16-17 holders have the required experience, skills and independence to share and report information about wrongdoing with the Financial Conduct Authority or relevant law enforcement agencies immediately. Seems fairly unforgiving to me to say it must be done immediately. 
Read and fully implement the Financial Conduct Authority's Financial Crime Guide, a firm's guide to countering financial crime risks and financial crime thematic reviews, which outline the steps firms must take to defend against financial crime. Now, the link to that letter, which is interesting if you work in compliance and wealth management and in stockbroking, is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of general financial crime news before we turn attention to rounding up the cyber attack news this week. The UK government has issued a joint statement with the Austrian government on security, migration and transnational crime. On security and law enforcement, the participants envisaged increased activities and enhanced cooperation as appropriate in combating serious and organised crime, including human smuggling, money laundering, cybercrime, fraud and economic crime, corruption, forgery and trafficking of documents, sexual exploitation and the abuse of children, and human trafficking. The participants will explore strengthening bilateral law enforcement and criminal justice cooperation, including exploring strengthening law enforcement information exchange via Interpol. On counter-terrorism, the participants will explore ways to enhance and intensify their security dialogue, with a focus on cybersecurity, hybrid threats, countering incitement, preventing online radicalization by tackling the availability and accessibility of terrorist content online, prevention, de-radicalization, and counter-terrorism. On international criminal investigations, the participants will enhance support for each other in international criminal investigations by making full use of operational capabilities agreed under Part 3 of the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Link to the press release and the text of the agreement is in the podcast description. Now, one short story before we turn our attention to the roundup of cyber attack news, and that is that the Financial Conduct Authority has also published a discussion paper on regulating crypto assets, the focus specifically being stable coins. The paper seeks to align stablecoins with typical regulatory structures such that the amount of those assets associated with illicit activities aligns with the Financial Conduct Authority's commitment to reduce and prevent financial crime. The FCA would like to know, as part of the discussion, whether respondents agree with the proposal to use the existing financial crime framework for regulated stablecoin issuers and custodians. In further If further additional requirements should be considered necessary, explanations should be provided as to why they are needed. Now, responses should be received by the 6th of February 2024. Link to the discussion paper, as well as the information sheet on the FCA website about crypto, can be found in the podcast description. As a footnote to this, the Bank of England has issued a discussion paper on stablecoins but their discussion concerns the systemic risks to the payment system. I've also linked that in the podcast description if you have a light weekend in terms of commitments. Now, that is it for other news which I thought was worth bringing to your attention, but now we end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the usual roundup of cyber attack news. And we'll start with... Brick Builders and the news that Bricklink, the online Lego marketplace uh, marketplace and fan community, was offline earlier this week due to a suggested hacking incident. 
An investigation into it continues. In Germany, the Office for Information Security has published its status report on IT and cybersecurity for the period June 2022 to June 2023. The report, which is linked in the podcast description, describes the threat level to be higher than ever, with new malware variants at a level of 332,000 per day for that relevant period. Germany has been targeted in recent months, well, certainly since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because Germany has been fulsome in its support of Ukraine. Following a series of cyber attacks on Microsoft's cloud platforms and critical infrastructure, Microsoft has launched its Secure Future initiative because of the, quotes, increasing speed, scale and sophistication of cyber attacks. This new initiative will bring together every part of Microsoft to advance cybersecurity protection. It will have three pillars, focused on AI-based cyber defenses, advances in fundamental software engineering, and advocacy for stronger application of international norms to protect civilians from cyber threats. Link to the full blog post is in the podcast description. Now, this next story. You may have thought we'd seen the back of the Move It cyber attack, but reports are still coming out concerning the fallout from that particular cyber attack. And this week, a bit of a high-profile one, really, since it has been reported that the email addresses belonging to over 600,000 U.S. federal employees at the Departments of Defense and Justice were obtained when the MoveIt software was compromised by the cyber attack early this year. I mean, that's a big one. I, I keep thinking we're reaching the end of this MoveIt cyber attack fallout, but no, there continue to be ripples in the mill pond, if I can give a rather twee metaphor. Anyway, continuing the themes of attacks on employees, the American Airlines Pilots Association has revealed that the personal information of some members may have been compromised in a cyber attack. The public website of the union was also impacted. Now to a follow-up of a story which we mentioned in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and it concerned what was then described as a cyber incident, but which this week Boeing has upgraded to a full-blown cyber attack and which has resulted in a significant data compromise. And in the US, again, still, I suppose, still in the US, it's being reported that the University of Michigan is being sued by students affected by the cyber attack on its systems, which exposed the personal information of over 200,000 people at the beginning of the autumn semester. The allegation is that the university was negligent in the adopted protections on its systems, which left them vulnerable to attackers. It'd be interesting to see where that one goes, because the approach to holding corporations or entities liable for the losses which are sustained by loss of information or any personal financial loss that is sustained during a cyber attack, it seems to me a much more generous approach in the US than there is in England and Wales. Certainly in England and Wales, a sequence of cases have attempted to close down the opportunity to recover funds individually in a civil action against an entity which has not maintained sufficient cyber controls. 
But it'll be, as I said, it'll be interesting to see where that claim goes. I suspect it'll be compromised at some point, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Now, just a roundup of a few more stories, and then we can head off and all get on with our lives. First, international law firm Allen & Overy has announced that it suffered a data incident which impacted some of its servers. At this time, it's believed to be the Lockbit cybercrime gang which is responsible for that. Secondly, it would seem that ChatGPT has become the victim of a cyber attack after it reported a series of outages from Wednesday of this week. After initially being put down to the popularity of some new features which have been launched, it would seem that OpenAI, which is the firm behind the AI software, appears now to be indicating that it's a cyber attack. Goodness knows what people are going to be doing. These people who use ChatGPT to do a bit of work for them, what are they going to do? Well, they'll have to do their own work. And, and finally this week, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv, the basketball team, has had its website compromised by a cyber attack. The platform is offline and has been replaced with a statement from the hackers. Well, that is it. For episode 83 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, if you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all over again next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>